All right, everybody. Hello and welcome to Open Door Philosophy, a podcast where a high school philosophy teacher, that's me, and his former student who's currently studying philosophy in college, that's me, unpack a variety of big philosophical concepts in an understandable way, all towards the purpose of living a good life. Welcome to a very special episode six. Andrew, what is all the excitement about? This week, we're celebrating the 1900th birthday of the great Roman emperor and philosopher, Marcus Aurelius. Yeah, I know that he is someone that both of us, uh, if I can speak for you, both of us look up to as a uh, philosophical mentor and really a mentor for living. When we discovered that his birthday was coming up, we knew that a special episode on him was in order. And so that is today. But before we get to, uh, to our friend Marcus, Andrew, how are things in your world? Things are growing great. You know, I I was really excited when you told me that this was his 1900th birthday. I think this was the uh, the biggest birthday that I've ever celebrated before. <laughs> uh, other than that, I am doing quite good. I'm finishing up all my midterms, so that's always an exciting season. How are you doing, Mr. Parsons? I'm good. Uh, we're, we're kind of in the same boat, I suppose. I have three research papers left to make comments on when we're done with this podcast, and that will be it for this particular round yeah, <laughs> uh, they will they will return to me in in two weeks, and I will uh, I will grade them for their final uh, for oh my their final grade. But um, but it's uh, edit the editing process is a long and laborious process, which I'm right. sure you're aware of. <laughs> yeah, I guess the other thing is I'm recovering from what can only be called a, a violent case of food poisoning. Oh no, <laughs> I won't go into the details, but everyone can can imagine for themselves. Uh, I'm on day three of, of that recovery and feeling pretty good. So, but anyway, that was kind of a foul end to my spring break, which I don't believe you had one, so I shouldn't complain. I did not. I did not. But I would rather not have a spring break than, than have food poisoning. So <laughs> it was, it was not fun. It's not fun. Yeah. And then I guess the last thing, of course, is just in praise of spring. It is another gorgeous day. And down here in Houston, it seems like we get four months of it because it starts so early in February with the exception of the snowpocalypse this year. (laughs) So if I can muster up the energy, I might sit outdoors in the backyard to finish up those last three research (laughs) papers. That sounds really nice. All right, Andrew, so what is in the book stack recently for you? So the book stack this week, I am bringing in a new, very special book uh, that one of my professors recommended to me. It's by the philosopher and poet Lucretius. It's called The Way Things Are, also titled as On the Nature of Things, I believe. It's a really cool book. It's on Epicureanism. It's called a didactic poem, so it's just... I don't think we really have any English equivalents of it other than what the Roman translations are, but it's just going through this long story of Epicureanism. It's really interesting. And I think it's, uh, it's funny that I'm bringing this up because it's almost a, it's a great contrast with today's episode with the Stoics. And this, this book's kind of just for fun. And then currently on my docket of things after this podcast to read is uh, Plato's Symposium. I've done about half of it, but the other half will be. Up, up, upcoming soon. <laughs> what about uh, what about what's on your book reading list? Well, I've, I've nothing new, 
So what I've done is I've, I've found myself, I do this to myself every now and then, I've, I've found myself in too many books at once. And so I've been on a project of wrapping up books. I have a stack of new books that I'm very excited about that I want to get to. So recently, uh, I've wrapped up the Nicomachean Ethics from nice. Aristotle, of course, which is uh, his great book on virtue ethics. I've wrapped up Seneca, his letters from a Stoic, which is full of all kinds of great Stoic advice. That was actually really interesting. I don't think I realized. I mean, I did, but I didn't. It, in his letters, you just get the sense of the the richness of life in Rome. It's it's certainly not what we would consider uh, barbaric by any means. I mean, he was an aristocrat, but still, the types of, of living and life and luxury that he describes does not seem terribly far off from from what we experience to a, a great extent, which is really fascinating. Uh, but anyway, uh, I've wrapped that up, and and now I am I'm trying to burn through the rest of this Emerson biography. I'm oh, on a, I'm on about page three fifty of of six hundred or so. Oh my gosh! So so I'm wow. get I'm getting there. Boy, it's just so rich, and I think like I've said on previous episodes, uh, it's the, it's the size of a brick, and it could hold a door open. It's so big, but it has these just these really uh, thick pieces of paper. Like it's not printed on really thin paper, you know. I see. And that's it's one of the reasons it's thick, but it does make for a very enjoyable read uh, because the, the margins are wide and it can make lots of notes and stuff, but it's a lot right. of Emerson. You know, it's funny, you're talking about Seneca. I was talking to one of my professors the other day and he, he was telling me about Seneca and I was like, oh yeah, I've read uh, his letters. And then he, he asked me if I've read this book called On Anger. Have you ever heard of it? No. Well, I don't think so. Yeah, I I'd never heard of it either. So I guess maybe this will be on the the book list for the future. But he said, I guess it's like a treatise or something. And he said that he wrote that supposedly for the Emperor Nero. <laughs> he was the tutor of Nero, which is a, a really interesting fact about him and his Stoic outlook. Uh, if if you needed a Stoic outlook for any emperor, um, <laughs> it, it would be if you were the tutor of Nero. Or advisor. I don't know if he's an advisor or a tutor, actually. I don't know, but I, I'm sure I'm sure stoicism was a, a great a great reliever of stress. <laughs> One of the other things by him I want to read, I think it's a standalone piece, is he has this, well, for lack of a better term, a, a meditation on on the nature of time. Which of course that's interwoven in his letters, but I think he wrote something very uh, a specific piece about that. The, the nature of, of time and, and life and death. And I've heard it's very good and is a sobering but positive book. Is that going to be your next stoic, uh, stoic kind of, I, I don't know what the, what the right word is. Uh, <laughs> my next stoic read. Your next stoic read. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I guess. I don't know what my next stoic read is going to be. This does kind of create a vacuum. I'm sure everyone's very interested. This does create a vacuum in my sort of morning routine where over the last six months or so, I've been reading stoics with my breakfast, whether that was Marcus Aurelius, Epictetus, or Seneca. And at least with what I've had, I've reached the end of that. I do have Ryan Holiday's Daily Stoic, which I read each morning. But, you know, that's that's one quote and a very brief reflection, right. which is fine. But, yeah, I don't know where I'm going to go next with that. Well, I guess everyone will have to tune in next week to see, uh, next two weeks, I guess, to see the updates on uh, what the next Stoic read will be. <laughs> Yeah, and I guess that's a, a nice segue to move into our main topic for this week. 
Well, as we alluded to earlier, it is since it is the 1900th birthday of Marcus Aurelius, we will be talking about him in this episode. And as as a brief brief overview before, I guess we get into the historical context for anyone who doesn't know, Marcus Aurelius is a late Roman emperor around the end of the second century, I guess middle to the end of the second century. And we are talking about him because he is a Stoic philosopher or a Stoic thinker, some might say. But Mr. Parsons, do you want to go a little bit further into the historical context? Yeah, sure. So if everyone wants to celebrate the exact day, uh, his birthday was April 26th. I believe this episode will hit the airways on April 20th, so we're about a week ahead. But that's okay. We celebrate Marcus all month. But uh, but he was born on April 26th. Yeah, you put him square in, in the correct spot on the timeline there. His ruling dates were 161 to 180, but he was born in 121. He's part of a group that Histo- I don't know where historians always come up with these names, but he's part, part of a group that's that's called the Five Good Emperors. It, it, under the Five Good Emperors, you have a, a, a relative time of peace, at least if you were within the Roman Empire, and, and stability, economic prosperity. There was little civil unrest, a healthy deal of, of order in, in, in their society. That doesn't mean there weren't issues during those five emperors' reigns, but Marcus is the last of those five five good emperors. And I sometimes wonder if they were called uh, the five good emperors just because the, uh, the the previous 12 emperors, half of them were lunatics, like <laughs> like Caligula and Nero. <laughs> Some were very good, like Augustus. But most of those first 12 emperors were a little hit and miss. So I, sometimes I wonder if the five good emperors were are called the five good emperors because they're just not as bad as the previous 12. But anyway, yes. And, and, I, and, and I believe Marcus is also the last emperor of what's considered the Pax Romana, uh, which is a considered, I guess, if you will, again, this is one of these historical terms, the golden age of Rome, despite some of those 12 emperors who some of them were just completely bonkers. Despite that, the Pax Romana was appeared from about Julius Caesar, although there's some civil war in there, uh, Julius Caesar to, to Marcus Aurelius, where I think you probably say like this was the height of the Roman empire. Rome was doing quite well. And usually when we see civilizations doing this, it's a, a time when there's more artistic and, and philosophical interests going um, and, and expanding because, of course, they, they have the, the means to do so. So we see a lot of progress in art and architecture and especially philosophy. We can see this uh, kind of similar pattern with Greece too. But that sets all up nicely for Marcus Aurelius. <laughs> So we've, we've talked a little bit about Marcus Aurelius already, but what is, what is Stoicism? Yeah, so Stoicism, we've mentioned on previous episodes, Stoicism was a, well, I mean, it's a philosophy, but it's a, it's a philosophy that revolves around the idea of, of, I guess you'd call ways of living specifically. It sprang up along with a couple other schools of philosophy like Epicureanism just after Alexander the Great conquers the Persian Empire, and we have this era called Hellenism. So Stoicism began in the third century. Uh, the first Stoic, I guess you could say, the, the guy who started it all, his name was Zeno of Sidium, and he would talk with his students on the porch, if you will, and a porch in Greek is called the Stoa. 
And so this is where the term stoicism comes from. But uh, do you want to talk about some of its foundational ideas and tenets? Sure. So I think I think I would consider stoicism a, 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 at least a branch off of virtue ethics. Would you say that's kind of accurate? I would say so. Yeah, I have it to talk about here in a little bit. But yeah, the four the four Stoic virtues are from uh, from Aristotle's virtue ethics. A, a way that I think about Stoicism is there's there's a lot of ethical systems, of course, but Stoicism is kind of a, a personal ethical system. It's a way of approaching life so you can live it in the in the best way possible. I guess the way that one would accomplish this is is by training themselves to appreciate the things that you have uh, in, in a certain moment, uh, the things that nature has given you. I think that's the simplest way of explaining stoicism. But let me give you let me give you an example real quick of of a kind of a stoic mindset. I, I guess this is one for for kids of my generation. But say that you you just got a new Xbox for Christmas or something. I don't know. <laughs> and say that your brother or sister or whatever, your dog ran into the Xbox and broke it. And uh, now now the Xbox bro- is broken. And then you're, uh, you know, of course, you're really angry and you're sad and, and you're frustrated. What is what is this thing done to your Xbox? You know, your prized possession. But, you know, if, if you think about it a little further, the way a stoic might... Uh, you know, there's 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 plenty of ways that you can have a good time without the with an Xbox. You know, you can can go outside, you can play, you can uh, spend time with yourself reading Marcus Aurelius. <laughs> that the you know the Xbox, it's not it's not really that important in the end. So so if the Xbox breaks, then how do we approach that? Are you do you mean like the way that a Stoic would approach that? <laughs> yeah 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 yeah. So I think the the Stoic would be. They would be calm uh, and okay when when this uh, you know this isn't really a bad necessarily a bad thing, uh, but it might seem like a bad thing that happened because you know they've they've learned uh, how you can they can cope with you know these rough situations uh, because they've either imagined or, or practiced uh, going with off these this Xbox or, or anything I guess so they've prepared they've thought about. I guess this is getting more than an Xbox, but yeah, uh, the Xbox isn't really important. Okay, so the the Stoic would appreciate all the things, you know, all the time. Maybe they spent playing on the the game, but they realize that, uh, you know, that that's kind of a temporary thing. So they can appreciate all the the good times they might have had with the Xbox or whatever, uh, but they can also, you know, move past it and, and see what it actually is. Uh, that it's actually not that big of a deal. I want to say it's Epictetus that gives the example of a coffee mug. Well, I don't know if there's a coffee mug in ancient Rome, but it's a mug uh, that he just really likes. And, uh, you know, he drops it and it breaks. And, you know, what do you do about that? You can be angry. You can be frustrated. You could be annoyed with yourself for being clumsy uh, or whatever. Or you can look at it from the perspective of uh, this is just an object. And any meaning that this object has is meaning that I give to it. And I'm in control of that meaning. And so whether it's a coffee mug, whether it's an Xbox, whether it's our house, our jobs, our reputation, or even life itself, these are all things that are temporary because that is the nature of everything. Everything is temporary. And I think that's one of the foundational ideas that revolves around Stoicism is it's kind of an understanding of the natural world. Marcus Aurelius 
talks about the nature of things quite often. And this is the nature of things. We, we do what nature demands of us. And so uh, I think also kind of maybe a little bit of what you're talking about might be, again, back to Epictetus is the idea of the what they call the dichotomy of control. There are certain things that are in our control and certain things that are not in our control. And so we should attempt to to focus and cultivate the things that we can control and not concern ourselves so much with the things we can't control. In fact, here's the quote from Epictetus. It says, some things are in our control and others not. Things in our control are opinion, pursuit, desire, aversion, and in a word, whatever are our own actions. Things not in our control are body, property, reputation, command, and in one word, whatever are not our own actions. So sure, maybe we could be more physically adept at holding our coffee mug and maybe we didn't drop it and break it. But you know, whether it's a coffee mug or whether it's what other people think about us, we can't control those things. Uh, what we can control is ourselves, our reactions to it, and, and those types of things. So that, that's kind of the dichotomy of control, which is one of the big, the big tenets. So when you talk about nature, are we talking about like, you know, going outside to the park and seeing everyone playing in nature or is it something else? That's a good question. So the Stoics appreciate both. You know, I, I we'll get to this in a later episode, but, you know, Stoicism is probably the most Eastern of, of ways of living uh, that come out of the West, if you will. I, I think of Taoism a lot. Uh, when I think of Stoicism, because there is a great appeal to nature and what nature can teach us. That would be the going out and being in the park kind of nature. So there's a great appreci- appreciation of nature and what lessons we can learn from nature. But then the Stoics also talk about the nature of things, which is kind of interconnected. You know, for instance, I'm looking out my window right now and, you know, I, I see an oleander that has died because of the freeze that happened. That is its nature oleanders die when it gets below 32 degrees. And I shouldn't be upset about that because that's what oleanders do. You know, and I shouldn't be upset about the fact that it got down to 32 degrees because that's what weather does sometimes. So, so that's why I talk about like the nature of things, but then also nature as in like, we can learn a lesson from this, this <laughs> dead oleander. I'm not sure what kind of lessons we can learn from it, but that, uh, that all things, well, uh, all things end. And that is also the the nature of things, but nature teaches us that. So whether that's a nature with a capital N or not, you can discern that. But does that, does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And I think something else that, I mean, you mentioned death as a, as a nature of things and kind of nature in general, but I think that something that all these Stoic philosophers get from my favorite uh, Aristotle is something else is about things nature is their function it's what a thing is meant to do kind of like you're alluding to with the nature so is an ant meant to drive a school bus no (laughs) like obviously not and marcus aurelius and all these stoics i mean too they they're going to apply this to humans if it's not in a human's really in a human soul honestly i think if it's not in a human soul's nature to do you really shouldn't be doing it or you really shouldn't be worrying about it so I think that's a really cool thing to think about. That's good. That's good. And another two things, two terms rather that I'd like to throw at that go back to your an earlier point that you made about, you know, what is the purpose of stoicism? 
So there's two very fancy Greek words that I'd like to probably mispronounce. Uh, so the Stoics attempt to achieve or find eudaimonia, which is a Greek word that means, some people call it happiness. I have my issues with the word happy or happiness, but uh, but others will call it blessedness. But eudaimonia is just a, a sense of, of blessedness. And then uh, ataraxia is a term that means uh, tranquility or equanimity, which is sort of like mental calmness and composure. So you can see how that kind of connects with your Xbox example, that you your Xbox breaks. Are you going to be angry or frustrated about that? Or do you want to have mental calmness and composure about that? And which of those reactions to the breaking of the Xbox would, would, would bring you greater ataraxia, greater tranquility? I've often heard uh, eudaimonia, or however it's pronounced, um, as, as something, I think it's translated, at least I've heard it translated as flourishing. And I like, I like mm. flourishing better than happiness, but I haven't heard, is it blessedness? Yeah, blessedness, I but you know, I haven't that, heard that, that comes one with yet, its but, own baggage too, you know. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, I think eudaimonia, just the word, is, is, is hard to translate, or however it's it pronounced is. too, so... Maybe I we, believe we talked about flourishing with Aristotle um, yeah. when we had that episode. Yeah, yes. yeah, same, same, same it's word. The same, yeah, it's the same exact thing. So if we talk about that word, however it's pronounced, just just think of think of flourishing, blessedness, happiness. It's all the same, same thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then I guess the last thing to to bring up about you know what is Stoicism is, and you alluded to it earlier with virtues. There are four Stoic virtues that they place a, a great deal of emphasis on and is, is their guiding moral, uh, more, that's their guiding pathway. Uh, anyway, those four Stoic virtues are courage, wisdom, temperance, and justice. So I, I'm a big virtue ethics guy, and I think this is, when we think about virtues, it's often helpful to translate virtue as the term excellence. So if we think of the term, I think virtuous actually is a better translation of the word uh, excellence. So if we think of virtues, I, I know this isn't true in Aristotle. I, I don't read, I'm not a Stoic scholar by any means yet, but uh, I'm sure it still applies. But when we think about virtues, we think we should be thinking of things that make the soul excellent. So justice is something that makes the soul excellent. So these four Stoic virtues are, in the Stoics' eyes, and a lot of virtue ethicists' eyes, things that make the soul excellent. So it's things that put the soul in a state of eudaimonia. Yeah, we talked about these types of things in episode three, which was on Aristotle, especially when we talked about the golden mean. There are a number of virtues associated with Aristotle, but, uh, but these four were like the most important ones to the Stoics. And uh, not surprising, these are the four that also end up in uh, St. Thomas Aquinas's list of virtues as well. And, you know, if you look at each one of them, and, and so, so again, they are courage, wisdom, temperance, and justice. Temperance, if you're not familiar with that term, would be something along the lines of moderation, right? Like self-control. But each one of them can guide a person in their ethical decision-making. Uh, one I'd like to just say something about briefly is the term justice, and I can't remember if we talked about this in episode three or not. So apologies if this is redundant. But uh, justice, I think, is an interesting concept in the United States, at least, and I'm sure in other places, where we associate that with law and order. And justice is something that comes after an act that has been 
uh, perpetrated upon a person in a way that, uh, that is in violation of something. And justice in the concept that I understand it through virtue ethics and stoicism is not necessarily that, although I guess it could be, but it's more about how you treat a person. And justice is, you know, if you're being just with someone, if you're applying justice to someone, you're being fair to that person. You're treating them as an equal. And so I, I like that different interpretation of justice. And, you know, if that's a confusing term in these four stoic virtues, you know, reorient that term to where you're treating someone good. Uh, justice is treating someone in, in, a, in an ethically good way. So we've talked a lot about Stoicism. Uh, so out of all the Stoic philosophers that have existed, I mean, there's there's been a ton of them. Mr. Parsons, why is Marcus Aurelius so captivating? Oh, you and I have to fight for airtime on this one. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. So for those who are unfamiliar with Stoicism, there's three main Roman sources. You have Marcus Aurelius, you have Epictetus, and then Seneca. There are others, uh, but those are the big three. Of those three, if you look at their works, they're very different in how they uh, how they write. And they also come from very bit different backgrounds. But Marcus Aurelius's book, the, the Meditations, and by the way, and I'm pretty sure I speak for Andrew on this one, we recommend the Gregory Hayes translation if you're interested in picking this up. I highly recommend you get a copy of it. It's only going to cost you seven or eight bucks. Yep. But it's uh, it's the Gregory Hayes translation, which comes from the modern library. And so the work is called Meditations. And it is a collection of very short diary entries, uh, journal entries uh, of Marcus's. And so, so it reads non-linearly, really, like there's no narrative to it. Uh, you just have these chunks of of wisdom, you know, his thoughts about the day that were coming. And uh, I, I like that type of, of reading. They're almost aphorisms in a way, some of his works, it, as opposed to Epictetus, which is kind of like long lectures, and Seneca, which is letters to uh, to a friend. But I don't know. I'll, I'll stop there and let you talk for a minute about why Marcus Aurelius is so great to you. I think I just scratched the surface. A hundred percent. I mean, I, I agree with you on the same things. He is not in any ways like, like I said at the beginning of the episode, I don't think of Marcus Aurelius as necessarily a philosopher, even though he is, I'm sure. I think of him more as a, a thinker, as a practitioner. He's, he's practicing all these stoic concepts. He's not writing about them, trying to prove his idea of being right. He's just living all these beliefs. And so he's not using pomp and frill and logical arguments to prove whatever he's thinking right. He's saying, oh, yeah, I've applied this principle to my life. It's, it's kept my life in order. It's made my life better. Here's how, here's, here's my thoughts on this. And, or on the converse of that, too, like my day kind of was not so great. This is things that I need to remember. Or even, it's literally anything. I mean, bad things, good things, but... This guy's no joke, you know. He's he's the emperor of Roman. He's the emperor of Rome. He's he's one of the he's the highest general in Rome too. He is on war for most of the books. He's dealing with the Antonine plague, so it's very practical to this time too. He's going through all this stuff, and it, it's just it's just a book of great, 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 great wisdom. Yeah, he was a very inward thinker, and this is one of the things I really enjoy about about him. Supposedly. 
the meditations is basically his morning journal. He would get up every morning and just write a little bit before he would embrace the day. And so I appreciate his inwardness, especially for a person, like you said, who has the degree of power that he has. And this is perhaps one of the most remarkable things about him is that, again, he, he was the he was the emperor of the Roman Empire, basically the most powerful person in the world at that time. And he grew up in tremendous wealth. And there is, I can't imagine being an emperor, just constant demands on his time. Uh, yet he refused to allow himself to become corrupted as many of the previous emperors had. We've, there's plenty of examples of Roman emperors who just go off the deep end because of power. Yet because of Stoicism, his Stoic practice, like you said, he's really not in a, in a philosopher per se, as just someone who's living the tenets of Stoicism and, uh, and the struggles and in conjunction with Stoicism, trying to live his way through those. He's just, just for that, that fact alone of his background and who he was, he could he could do literally anything he he wanted to that was within his power, and yet he maintains his integrity through all of that, and, and that's one of the reasons I think for me he's uh, such a such a role model really. This book is wasn't even meant to be published. It was just it was just literally for him to remember these lessons and goals. And I just think that we often think about the past as something that you know we've evolved from that we're we're somehow better than. But Marcus Aurelius is these these tenants in this book aren't just something that we can throw away. I mean, if you did a little bit of updating on the words, you could you could literally. I think it could pass off as a modern day journal for a high tech CEO or something. You know, there's yeah. just it's it's just so so practical. One of the quotes that I one of my favorite quotes from the entire thing is he says. Stop what you're doing for a moment and ask yourself, am I afraid of death because I won't be able to do this anymore? And I mean, I, I know this isn't our quote corner or anything, but it's this book is just full of full of quotes like that that are just really reflective if you think about that. Like they are laden with stoic philosophy, but it gets rid of the pompous frill that a lot of philosophy produces, like uh, proving the logical constructs behind that statement, you know. That's, it's as simple as it needs to be. And it's really very, very, it's just so practical, you know. A practical is the perfect word. It's, it's full of practical, very relatable, like you said, very relatable and empowering advice on living. He, he constantly brings up these types of questions that we all have, like, why are we here? And since we're here, what should we do about it? How can I deal with pain and misfortune? Uh, what is our human nature? How can we cultivate the type of character that will assist us in our daily stresses? I mean, that's that's job one for human beings right there. And of course, with Marcus, especially since he was writing this near the end of his life, uh, and since we will all die, what should our attitude be about that? So these are these are very, very relatable, common concerns of any human being, which again, I think is, is the power of the book. And and he also writes the, uh, speaking of the power of the book, he also writes the, his daily journal to himself. You know, when, when you think about journal writing, and I journal write uh, a lot, one of my questions is always like, well, who am I writing this to? And we always kind of write in this sort of third person perspective as if someone's peeking over our shoulder and seeing what we're writing, as if we're writing 
to them. Whereas Marcus Aurelius says, when you wake up in the morning, tell yourself the people I will deal with today will be meddling, ungrateful, arrogant, dishonest, jealous, and surly. They are like this because they can't tell good from evil. When he says, when you wake up in the morning, tell yourself, he's not saying that to you. He's saying that to himself. But that's the power of the book is it, he, it feels like, like there's such an intimacy there. It feels like he's speaking directly to you. Something else that's really cool is how many great people of history, I mean, I know that we're kind of cautious about this term, but how many influential people in history have been influenced themselves by Marcus Aurelius. I, I read this biography, I, I forget the name, over the summer about Teddy Roosevelt. And I remember that he used to keep the meditations in his saddlebag and in his desk in the White House at all times. And he'd always be reading it. So that, that can tell you a little something. Yeah, indeed, the list is long. George Washington was a, a big fan of Marcus Aurelius. Uh, I'm, I'm reading this Emerson biography, as you well know, and uh, Emerson was very interested in Marcus Aurelius and his ideas. Uh, on the campus of, of Brown University, I mean, there's a statue of Marcus Aurelius. That This guy has been influential for 1900 years. And I think that, if nothing more, is, is really a testament to his, his insights. He's famous for his quotes. Do you want to... Do you want to toss out some of, of our favorites here? Okay, how, how about this one while I find it? This one's, I, I put it above my desk to keep me stopped from procrastinating, but it is, concentrate every minute like a Roman on doing what's in front of you with precise and genuine seriousness, tenderly, willingly, with justice. And it, it's a little bit of a longer quote, but we often find ourselves tempted with a lot of distractions. So I think it's often very helpful to remind myself that I should be concentrating not just when I'm doing my work, but in every moment. I mean, we've talked about this a lot and I like to use the word living life on autopilot, but really what's the point of not concentrating? What's the, what's the point of letting yourself get distracted? So I think that's a, that's a fun uh, starting quote. What about you? Well, I've got a lot here. Um, I won't do all of them, of course. But yeah, Marcus talks a lot about distractions and, and keeping keeping our, ourselves focused on what's important. To sort of echo what, what you talk about, there, I have a quote of Marcus's in my, uh, in my office at work. The Hayes translation says this, love the discipline you know and let it support you. But there's an, another translation of this that I like. This is actually the one in my office. It says, give your heart to the trade you have learned and draw refreshment from it. And, you know, we all get frustrated at work at times. We get overwhelmed. And Marcus talks about, this is what you're born to do. Maybe I wasn't born specifically to do the exact job I was doing. But as human beings, going back to that idea of nature, the nature of things, we were born to work. And so I, I try to remind myself of that in the frustrating moments of work. It's like, give my heart to the trade I have learned, the trade of teaching, and draw refreshment from that. It's like should be invigorating to the soul, right? That's one of my favorite quotes. And the other that goes right along with this, which echoes again your quote. Um, this is one of those famous ones. Uh, it's about getting out of bed in the morning. Right. Yep. <laughs> yep. So this, this one's a well-known. So it says, uh, at dawn, when you have trouble getting out of bed, tell yourself, I have to go to work as a human being. What do I have to complain of? 
if I'm not going to do what I was born for, the things I was brought into the world to do? Or is this what I was created for, to huddle under the blankets and stay warm? And he carries, you know, he continues on, talks about, but I want to stay under the blankets. Being warm is nice. And, and he kind of chides himself for, for these types of ideas. Yeah. So it's like, it's like remain focused on what's important and, uh, and get, your, get your butt out of bed because <laughs> life, life is out there to be lived. Yeah. And that, that's just, I think later in the quote, he, he discusses the nature of things. Like it's, it's not your nature to lay in bed, just like it's not the nature of, uh, I think he uses the bees or I think he uses the bees and the ants as an example. I mean, it doesn't really matter, but we look outside, we see animals working. We're not that far from animals. So why are we laying in bed? This one I really like. I think it's very applicable. It's waste no more time arguing what a good person should be, be one. I think that's just really, really appropriate. And it's really something that I think about a lot, a lot as someone who's interested in ethical philosophy. It's, it's one of the reasons that I'm not a huge fan of political philosophy anymore. I think that philosophers spend a lot of time debating on what the best action one should do when it's really, really quite obvious for us. We, we don't really, we are, I think we are ingrained with a, with a certainly a natural idea of what right and wrong is. You, you can debate that, sure, but you know what the right thing to do is. So just do it. Yeah. Yeah. Could, could you say the quote one more time? Sure. It is waste no more time arguing what a good person should be, be one. Yeah, so so we'll just play like tennis here with with quotes and, and bat back and forth. Marcus does talk a lot about the concern of others, how, or rather, how much concern should we have uh, about what people other people think? Concern yourself with yourself, and the byproduct of that will be goodness for others. Right? There's a lot of recurring themes throughout the book, and so here's one that goes with the quote you just gave. Don't waste the rest of your time here worrying about other people unless it affects the common good. It will keep you from doing anything useful. You'll be too preoccupied with what so-and-so is doing and why and what they're saying and what they're thinking and what they're up to and all the other things that throw you off and keep you from focusing on your own mind. And uh, boy, I I can't help but think of social media when I when I read that particular quote or just the drama we get caught up uh, in our daily lives with other people. Yeah, 100%. And you just reminded me of this great quote. He talks about an older, older generation, uh, the age of Vespians. He takes them for example. And he says, those people in that age, people doing the same exact things, marrying, raising children, getting sick, dying, waging war, throwing parties, doing business, et cetera, et cetera hoping others will die, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and then he, he goes on and he says, basically, this is the same thing that's going on now. And then he concludes this with, you're better off not giving the small things more time than they deserve. So it's kind of a two-in-one quote there. History repeats itself, sure. Yeah, that's a, that's a famous kind of idea. But I think more on the lines of what he's talking about is human nature is always the same. People always act the same. They always will. So it's better not really caring how, how fickle people are, kind of like we talked about earlier, and just worrying about bigger things. 
So this gets us to maybe one of the criticisms of stoicism is that it doesn't care enough about other people, that it is so focused uh, on the individual. I don't think that's stoicism's approach. And, and I think I want to say that's a superficial understanding of, of perhaps what stoicism is. It's certainly not saying be ambivalent about everything. I haven't heard a student once yeah. use the word nihilism associated with it. Uh, this doesn't mean don't be passionate about something. It means uh, for Stoicism, it's it's to be passionate about the right things. No. You don't want to be passionate about what so-and-so is saying and gossiping about this person or that person. That's not what you should be passionate about. You should be passionate about the cultivation of your mind and of your virtues, which by extension will then benefit others. So, so I just kind of wanted to, to throw that in real quick. He, he does talk about the ego a lot as well. Again, your quote sort of alludes to this. One of my favorite quotes uh, is this one. It says, keep in mind how fast things pass by and are gone. Those that are now and those that are to come. Existence flows past us like a river. So it would take an idiot to feel self-important or distressed or an indignation either, as if the things that irritate us lasted. Something that you reminded me of with with people thinking stoicism is kind of a it's a heartless heartless especially with other people there's this one quote i think that often gets thrown a lot around oh where yeah he, he says something to the extent of as you kiss your son good night each night whisper to yourself he may be dead in the morning this this seems you know this seems super heartless when 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 you read it for the first time you're like what is he talking about is he is he is he hoping his son dies or or something like are you hoping your loved one dies I I don't think that that's quite the case you know I think that's doing two things first it's saying you need to appreciate the people who are around you when they are because either they will eventually leave your life and and you won't be with them anymore and in a physical sense. We're in a metaphysical sense, you know, they're, they're going to die one day. That's the nature of humans. So we need to, we need to be present when we spend time with people that we love. And then in a second sense, you know, he's also preparing himself for the possibility and, and accepting the fact in the moment that there will be a day when people around us who we love won't be there anymore. And he's, he's already starting to kind of, you know, he's accepting this fact to be, you know, it is a fact. It is a, it's a law of the universe. Uh, the physical body uh, will die. So, yeah, just very, very interesting. <laughs> yeah. And, and to that point with, with being with others, sometimes you read it of Marcus, he seems very pessimistic. Like I read that, uh, that phrase earlier that, that said, you know, when you wake up in the morning, you know, you tell yourself you're going to deal with meddling, ungrateful, arrogant, dishonest, jealous people, you know, you're like, geez, what a, what a pessimistic outlook on life. But he also turns that around and acknowledges the importance of working with others, even when we don't disagree with them, or, or even when we uh, do disagree with them. And this kind of goes to presentness as well. He talks about pr being present quite a lot in, in, in the meditations because time is such an issue. But he says this at, at the end of that same quote. He says, but I cannot feel anger at him, those other people who are that way. We are born to work together like feet, hands, and eyes, like two rows of teeth, upper and lower. And then in a couple chapters later, he also says, to feel affection for people, even when they make mistakes, is uniquely human. You can do it if you just simply recognize that they are human too. 
and they act out of ignorance against their will. And so there is a generosity that Marcus and Stoics have not only for others, but for ourselves. Yes, it's, it's, it's sort of nice to mentally armor yourself if you know you're getting ready to head into a rough day, I'm sure as an emperor does almost every day, and be like, yeah, there's going to be all kinds of people who are going to be demanding things of you. And some of them are going to be jerks. And, uh, and some of them are not going to be nice and friendly to you. But also you have to realize that they're human beings uh, and, and you too are a human being. And we're all just trying to get through this thing together and we have to work together and we have to, we have to be generous with each other. Okay, everybody. Well, thanks for putting up with uh, mine and, and Andrew's fanboydom uh, over, <laughs> over Marcus Aurelius. Uh, we think he's great, obviously. Uh, so do check out his book. We, we hope, again, we've said this many times, we hope that the thing that results from this podcast for listeners is to be able to uh, apply what they hear to their lives, uh, all towards the betterment of, of living a good life. And Marcus Aurelius, I think, is, is a key person that can help out someone towards that goal. And so we really encourage you to pick up uh, a copy of his book, The Meditations, and hope that that is an encouragement for you. But that is all we will, we will torture you with for now with Marcus Aurelius. Believe me, we could go on. But now it is time to head on over to the Quote Corner. All right, so welcome to the Quote Corner, a segment of the show where we review a philosophy quote on a scale of one to five stars. So this week we are doing a quote by Aristotle, uh, my one of my favorites. <laughs> uh, it is, man is by nature a social animal. An individual who is unsocial naturally and not accidentally is either beneath our notice or more than human. Society is something that precedes the individual. Do you, Mr. Parsons, do you want to take this one off or do you want me to, to talk about it for a little bit? I think I'll defer and let you let you talk about this one first, <laughs> since I know that you will have some some uh, some good opinions about Aristotle's quote. Sure, my my pleasure. I think that the reason I chose this quote is, I think it's often the at least the the very first part of it. Man is by nature a social animal or creature. I've seen it translated like that too. I think that's something that's thrown out quite a bit. So I figured that we should you know talk about that idea a little bit more. I think this is, this is, seems to be true. I think it seems to be the case. I talked to this a lot about one of my favorite professors at Rice and he always, he always forgets that he tells me this, but I will, I will share it with you too. He, there's this Harvard study that looked at the lives of people who they were Harvard students back 60 or 70 years ago. And the study tracked them throughout the entirety of their lives, uh, you know, throughout their various occupations, their various, you know, how many people uh, they were married to or how many kids they had, how long they lived, regardless of the fact, you know, whatever, whatever happened, how much money they had. And then they followed them, you know, throughout all of their life. And at the end of their life, they, they kept following up with them till they died. I'm rambling. Anyway, the point of the study was to see what made them happiest, what made them the most fulfilled. And anyway, at the end of their lives, 
the the very high majority of the study the study basically conclusively concluded haha that relationships are what made people most happiest you know i i think that there's a lot more things to prove this quote is true but i think that often uh these long term experiments are often really cool so i think it's true i think humans are social animals and we need relationships with one another positive relationships to to thrive yeah i agree with you andrew i think even the most introverted person craves community at some point we all have different degrees uh, of which we enjoy some solitude and some alone time but whether you're a person that just constantly wants uh, to be around people and engage with people or whether you're something you just occasionally like to partake in at some point you will hit uh, a, a point where you have to have that community with someone even if with if it's just with a very small amount of people some people have a ton of friends and some people have just a handful of friends and i have to say as a uh, uh, well okay so i think i think this quarantine that we've been in the last year to some degree in and out of it has sort of brought this quote back into the forefront of many people's minds because we were in some ways separated from society from each other at least in person and so things like zoom and google hangouts and stuff became more more part of our lives because we need that community. I mean, even something, you know, people started referring to things like a uh, zoom happy hours, uh, you know, <laughs> where friends, friends would get together on zoom and, uh, and have a drink together around five o'clock, just like they, uh, they might do, you know, once a week or so in their normal lives, just to have that interaction. And so for me, you know, the, the studies are great. Uh, but if talking Aristotle, who of course relied heavily on empiricism, uh, for my own empirical experience, I would say this definitely tracks true. That's funny you were talking about Zoom. I, I wasn't even thinking about that, even though it's, it seems quite obvious that I should have. Uh, but it just reminded me yesterday, I, I, you know, it's a gorgeous day in Houston. I was sitting outside working on my my paper, and I just remember hearing someone behind me. They were having conversations, so I guess it was eavesdropping. That's, that's, not, not, that, that's not the virtuous thing to do. <laughs> <laughs> But I just distinctly remember them saying, like, oh, my gosh, like, I'm, I want to get this vaccine so I can get a hug again. And that just really made me, uh, I don't know what that emotion was to feel, but it's just so, so true. You know, we just haven't had contact with people and it, it feels a little degrading on our souls. And I guess I guess you're right. Recent experience has shown this quote to be true. Yeah. You know, I just came back from. Tulsa, which is where my folks live, and uh, they're they're all, let's just say they all sort of or, are orbiting around that age of eighty, and uh, I didn't see my parents for over a year, and that was that was really hard on me. Even though they live far away from where I live, I, I do make it a point to see them three or four times a year in person, and boy, going a year without that was a long time. And I guess the other thing I've I've been reflecting on, you know, with this community aspect you, you you and i live in in harris county and you did you know that harris county the population of harris county is larger than 25 states 
Oh my goodness gracious. No, I did not. 25 states have a lower population than just what's in Harris County. That's incredible. Yeah. Isn't that something? And you think about, you know, you, you've heard like the larger the urban area, the more disconnected or lonely people can feel, which is really interesting because I, I, at, my, at my age, um, I think about this more and more, you know, ever since I moved to Harris County, though I feel very connected with the people I work with, as far as like community in my neighborhood and the part of town I live in and something like that, frankly, I feel very disconnected. I don't know anyone in any sort of meaningful way. And so as I moved towards like the later stage of my career and knowing that that retirement will come at some point, uh, I do think about like, well, where do I want to go next? And the thing I, th- I often return to is someplace where I can have community. This is, uh, I don't know if I want to bring this to a, such a morbid, yeah, I don't, I don't know. No, go ahead. Feel, feel, free to, <laughs> feel free to cut this out. Okay, okay. <laughs> but a reading group that I was a part of earlier this year, we were talking about uh, the art of dying. <laughs> this is very morbid. But this is actually something that people used to think a lot about, especially in Europe and the, the Renaissance and the Middle Ages. They used to think a lot about dying and the correct way to die. There was this very popular book called the Ars Moriendi which means the art of dying. And they would, it would almost be like a script. Maybe this can be a foreshadowing for a future episode, but it was, it was almost like a script that of, of how to die. Like, you know, the, everyone from the community would come in and gather at this person's bed when they were on their deathbed. And, you know, the family would be on the right side or whatever. And then the child would say something, and then the neighborhood boy in the back of the room would be listening. And it would almost be like this cycle that um, the whole community would go through together. And that's, that's a little off topic, but you just reminded me of that. Yeah, I think, I think communities these days are, are a bit disconnected for a variety of reasons, but they certainly weren't always like that. And I think that our lack of communities now, uh, maybe a lack of meaningful communities might be inhibiting our our way of living a good life. I think so. Boy, we've we've struck a we've struck <laughs> a deep a deep vein with this quote. <laughs> yeah. Well, I do think how societies deal with death is very interesting and certainly community is a big a big part of that. Because those were the celebrations, right? Births yep. and deaths and and weddings and things like that. Yeah. That's that's good stuff. Well, I think I think before we go down this, this rabbit trail any further, we should probably uh, we should probably give a rating to this. So, Andrew, I know you love Aristotle. I'm I really do. interested <laughs> what you're going to give him here. So, I'm how many give stars? It, I'm gonna I'm gonna do a, a strange thing and give it five stars. <laughs> I'm just straight for the five. Straight five. This is your first five star. It's, I think it is. Yeah, only for yeah. Aristotle. <laughs> it is. Oh man, boy, that puts a lot of pressure on me. Well, I feel like we've really read a lot into this quote. Um, so now here I am. I'm looking at it again one last time. I mean, my gut was a 4.5, but you've made me reconsider here. A 4.5 is pretty good, too. I mean, a 4.5 is pretty good, but I'm trying to find a reason for it not to be a 5. 
Yep. Giving it a five. Five stars. Wow. Oh, this awesome. is our first uh, first agreement also. <laughs> <laughs> Yay, this is so exciting. I guess this is Marcus Aurelius's gift, even though we didn't review Marcus Aurelius' quote. But <laughs> I guess so. Well, we reviewed lots of his quotes. We just didn't give him stars. <laughs> yeah, those are all fives. <laughs> those are all, all fives, all fives. <laughs> all right. Well, excellent quote, Andrew. Well, okay, everybody. Thank you for joining us. We'd love it if you'd leave a positive review and hit that subscribe button wherever you listen to podcasts so you'll know when that next episode drops. And please, please help your lost and wayward friend who clearly needs some Marcus Aurelius in their lives by passing on Open Door Philosophy. We'd really love to hear from you. If you'd like to tell us what you think of the show, have a question you would like for us to discuss or a philosophy quote you'd like for us to rate, please email us at opendoorphilosophy at gmail.com. You can follow all the philosophy on Twitter and Instagram at opendoorphilosophy and our website, opendoorphilosophy.com, where you can find many things about the show, including our book list, quotes we featured, and other media associated with the episode. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time. And remember, when your life seems in need of some philosophy, the door is always open.